Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Man, are y'all ready? There you go. Thank you. All right. We, we, we're teaching. All right. This is good. Hey, you know, man, uh, man, this has just been a week, man. Uh, this has just been a week. The demands on me and my pastoral side of visiting and hospitals and those kind of things, man, it's just what I love to do. I mean, I'm being honest with you. A lot of people don't like to do hospital visits and a lot of people don't like to do that, but man, it's one of my joys. I just love it. I get to be real with people and meet them. And then, man, that pushes in on then the time you get to prepare the word. Amen. <laughs> so I'm going to give you all my best attempt at, uh, man, this passage. Um, I love this passage, guys. This, this, is, this is just such an amazing passage because I'm going to tell you something in the passage today that, man, just blesses my heart to know uh, something I dreamed of doing as a little boy I'm going to get to do in heaven one day. And so, uh, man, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm juiced to give you all the word today. Are y'all ready to receive it? Um, y'all all right? Uh, but can I tell you this? Past couple of weeks, I've gotten you out early. Y'all noticed that. Today we're gonna eat a little heavy, all right? Just just so y'all know. We do have a business meeting right after church, so I do have a deadline. So just know I'm not gonna go forever. It might feel like it. But let me be transparent with you. I'm gonna preach as long as it takes me to get through the text. Because that's my job. Today it's a little bit longer, and there was no way to cut it off in the middle like I did last time. So just know, I do think about y'all. I do think about time constraints. That being said, listen to this, man. Somebody died, and I won't tell you who, and this person's body, that they were cremated, and they wanted their ashes to be scattered out all over the Pacific Ocean. So they took this person, they took their ashes, and they got in a plane, and they, they flew over the Pacific Ocean, and they scattered their ashes. And somebody was in the plane, and they said, man, if there's going to be a resurrection of our bodies, how is God going to restore a body like that? <laughs> well, you think about that, right? I mean, ashes strewn all over the Pacific Ocean. How, how is God going to take those molecules from wherever they would be and put a body back together? I mean, think about this. What about the ashes that are eaten by the animals? are soaked up by the marine life, and then those animals in turn have died, and other marine life have eaten those. You just think about this. This is a very complicated thing. <laughs> I mean, how, how's that going to work? How is God going to put a body like that back together? Well, hold on, because that might be your first problem, <laughs> thinking that that's going to be the same body. But you ever thought about it, though? I mean, I mean think about it. Uh, how's the Lord going to be resurrecting bodies that have been burned or completely destroyed? I mean, like, uh, dis displaced. There's some sickos in the world that just love to take bodies and just scatter them all. I mean, how's God going to do that, right? 
lot of times people think about that and then in correlation with that, they say, well, are we going to recognize each other once God puts us back together? There's a fear inside of people's heart that we won't know each other. And then other people are like, well, am I going to be the same? Because <laughs> I sure don't like the way I look now. I don't want to spend eternity dealing with that. Or you know what? I, I like being, you know, Miss Glamour. And I kind of think I want that forever. I mean, it goes both ways. I mean, are our bodies going to be the same? Or are they going to be different? That's a fair question. We well, see, that's where they're at in Corinth. Because Paul's been talking about the resurrection of the body. He's been trying to prove that to them and, and been trying to tell them, hey, all the reasons about that. And so now he comes to say, hey, listen, now that I've established that there is going to be a resurrection of the body, we have to actually talk about what that body is going to look like. And so that's kind of where we're at today. You know this, that Christ's bodily, listen, bodily resurrection guarantees that we will have a bodily resurrection. Paul's been talking about that. The idea that a spirit could exist eternally without a body is not Christianity. This is a cardinal doctrine that we're teaching about here. So our text this morning is going to give us two principles concerning our real resurrection bodies. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, man, we've only got one more week after today and we'll finally be out of 15. Yeah, there is hope. Y'all been praying. It's going to happen. Uh, but won't you stand with me, man, as we read from 1 Corinthians 15? I'm going to be reading in verse 35 and all the way through 49. So, again, this is the most important thing that we'll do today as far as my speaking is this word. This is God speaking, so let's give God our attention. So, so the question came, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of weed or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differs from stars in glory. So also is it resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but praise God, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven, as is the heavenly, so also those who are earthly, and as, as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as if we had borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak now to our hearts. Here's some things, man. Still not understanding this idea that, that God could maybe put together a body. <laughs> some people just began to mock it. Some people just begin to just mock it, and they ask a question 
not because of information, they ask a question to make the person that believed it feel incredibly stupid. So they're asking these questions not because they want to learn, but because they think they already have the answer, and they're wanting to mock Paul for simply believing in a resurrection of the body. So Paul answers those questions, and when he, when he does that, he teaches us these two things. First thing is there can be foolishness concerning our bodily resurrection. There can be foolishness concerning this bodily resurrection. There in verse 35, he says, but someone will say how the dead raised and what kind of body they come, and then he says, you fool. <laughs> well, that's because, first of all, some have incorrect thinking. Some have incorrect thinking. That's, that's what he's saying. Verse 35 makes it clear that those who doubted the resurrection were doing so on the basis of questions they couldn't actually figure out. And you know this as well as I do. It's, it's very foolish to deny something just because you don't understand it. In fact, Paul calls these people fools, and, and it really means that they are incredibly stupid. They're, they're choosing to be ignorant. And the idea of resurrection was repulsive to them because they couldn't imagine a rotted, decaying, stinking, corrupted bunch of whatever left in a grave coming all together again. That thought was incredibly stupid to them. And from the human viewpoint, it does look ridiculous. And on that premise, they asked these questions because they had incorrect thinking that could even happen. But secondly, some have incorrect teaching. Some have incorrect teaching. Those questions always arise when unbelief faces the question of the resurrection. So how can it be is the question. So the implication here is that they weren't asking because they wanted to know, they were saying, this cannot be, this is impossible. That's what their question was really meaning. Because the Greeks, of course, were teaching that it was a good thing, remember, to lose the body. The body was a prison house, they taught, and that we're limited and restricted, so the best thing we can do is get rid of these bodies so that we can be free. Well, that was one thing that was being taught. And, and then also they were in a part of the, the world where the Oriental religions, on the other hand, were teaching that many bodies were necessary in the process of salvation. So they started teaching about reincarnation. So their question wasn't so much, well, how can it be a body? Their question was, which body will be raised? <laughs> I mean, is it going to be the cow body that I had? Is, is it going to be the gorilla body that, that you have? Is it going to be this body? Which body is it? And so really, there was some incorrect teaching. And then thirdly, Paul is battling also some have incorrect traditions. Some have incorrect traditions. The Greek skeptics had their view fed somewhat by the rabbis. They were kind of in cahoots over this. And a little study of rabbinic thought in that day reveals that they taught that the resurrection body would be identical to the one which you currently had. In other words, some believe that if you had a body when you died and you were blind or you were lame or you were dumb or you were deaf, you would be raised in the very same way. Your body would still be blind, dumb, or deaf. So you have this incorrect thinking and teaching and traditions that cause people dis dis disbelieve in a bodily resurrection. So, so here's where Paul is kind of at. If you remember... Uh, King Agrippa was there, and, and he was really kind of doubting a lot of things. And if you remember, uh, Paul turns to King Agrippa, and he says, why should it be an incredible thing that God could raise the dead? Well, why is that such an incredible thought? I mean, what about bodies smashed to pieces in a wreck or blown up in a bomb or burned to cinders in a fire? What about that 
makes you think that God, who formed us out of the dust, <laughs> couldn't recreate us out of the same dust. Is that a problem to God? Well, see, you know that, and I know that. That's why, to some, this is very foolish. There's some foolish stuff going on about this. I mean, if God could do that, certainly God could do this. That's, that's his point. So Paul simply says to them, you fool. <laughs> because it's foolish to think that God couldn't do that. If God can speak to the dust and form us, certainly God can speak to whatever and form whatever. He, he's God. So then Paul moves from the foolishness to the facts. Now there are facts concerning our bodily resurrection. There are facts. There's not only foolishness, but there's facts. So what he's doing here is he's going to describe to them what kind of body they have. So he starts with an illustration. And first of all, put in a similar teaching fashion, there is a definite re relationship with our present body. So the new body that we have, there's a definite relationship with our present body. In verse 36 there, he says, That which you sow does not come to life until it dies. He uses an illustration from seed. He uses the illustration of seed put in the ground, buried, that then brings forth life. This is super clear. What Paul's really saying is, look, you shouldn't have any more problem with the resurrection concept than you have the concept of the harvest that you've just seen. You, you take that seed, you, you know you got to put it in the ground, and that seed has to die in order for new life to come out of it. You know that. Right? It goes in the ground and it has to die before it lives. So, so Paul's giving them this requirement about our resurrection body. Something has to die before you get a new body. Your old body's got to die, and then you get a new body. And then he goes and talks about this concept of reaping. So verse 37, he says, That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare gram perhaps of wheat or something else. The seed decomposes and then it rises again, but it rises in a different form than that which went in the ground. It's connected to it, but it's different from it. So there are these thoughts out there that he's dealing with. He's dealing with dissolution, deference, and continuity. He's saying this, there's got to be a dissolution of the first element, and what comes forth is going to be different, but it's continuing in the same life principle. In other words, whatever grain you sow, you're going to get that kind of life coming from that seed. And yet that which is produced, the tree or the stalk of grain, will be very different in appearance than that which was sown. Y'all know that to be true. We all know that to be true. And so he says the whole key is the decomposing of the seed, the dying of the seed, and then from the dying of the seed, out of the ground comes new life. It's the same kind of life, but yet it looks a little different. Jesus taught the same thing in John 12, 24, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ says, I'll go in the ground and I will die. There will be the end of the old and the beginning of the new. There will be some kind of transformation that takes place. And I believe that, that Jesus' resurrected body was somehow changed from that which went in the ground. It's not exactly the same as it was. It's just different. And the body that Jesus was born with was a very human body. It was a very natural body. But the body that Jesus Christ came out of the grave was, uh, was very different. In fact, no one could recognize him unless he let them recognize him. 
And yet they knew who he was, and he was still the same. He had the same scars, he had the same features, but yet in a very glorified manner. So there's this sense in which it's the same and yet different. That was true of Christ, and what Paul is saying is going to be true of us. This body will go in the grave. There's decomposition, in a sense, in terms of just an analogy. We're going to come out of that grave in a very different way than we went in. And Paul's saying that shouldn't be very hard to even understand. You see it every day in light before you. So then what is the resource that, that causes this? What's this requirement that we've got this reaping? What's the resource that's kind of behind it? Verse 38, he says this, but God. God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. The whole resurrection through this whole concept in chapter 15 is predicated on the power of God. He wants you to remember that the whole process is in God's hands. God can give anything anybody he wants to. God can do anything he wants when it comes to passing out bodies. If God can take some little seed and then give that seed a body of how he desired it to be when it come out of the grave, don't you think that God can take our seed of a body and when it's planted, he can give us a body that looks like what he wants to? That's Paul saying. But then why would God do that? What's the reason? Why, why is God doing this? Because there, look there, don't miss this. He says, but God, verse 38, but God's going to get a body just as who wished just as he wished. This is all about the glory of God. God does this for his own glory. And one day when we see our resurrected bodies, we're going to give him praise. I promise you that. I mean, unending, ceaseless praise, because we're going to get to it in a minute, and you're going to see why. So then Paul says this, there's a definite relationship with our present body, that there's a definite relationship. It's the same, but yet a little different. But then he says this, there's a distinct recreation of a physical body. There's a distinct recreation of a physical body. Again, Paul uses some illustration to make his point. He looks to the world of creatures. So look there in verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. Some get hung up here and say, how could we possibly have a different body? I mean, if I, if I agree with you that, that we do get a body, how can it be a different body? Well, Paul says, why? why? Why does that bother you? God has all kinds of bodies. There's all kinds of flesh, all kinds of bodies, celestial and terrestrial. Don't limit God. In verse 38, he says, God can give anybody, anybody he pleases. That's the point. Every seed produces its own plant dependent on the will of God. Everything has its own flesh. Then in verse 39, from a scientific point of view, we know this to be true. All flesh is not the same flesh. Don't you know that? I mean, they're according to, to what another preacher has pointed out. There's over 600, listen to this, octodecillion. I don't even know, I don't even know what that is. There are 600 octodecillion combinations of amino acids in your body. Now, I don't know how many 600 octodecillion combinations is. Here's what I do know. Hillbilly math, that's a lot. It's almost immeasurable. So the reason there's so many amino acids is because they're the building blocks of our flesh. Uh, amino acids are what put on the flesh for you and me and anything else. I have my set at work in me, and you have your little set at work in you. And for every individual, the combinations are unique. No two people are alike. 
You notice, right? We've got different complexions, different skin features. Some of us have a greater wrinkle capacity than others. Others have a greater resistance to the things of gravity than other people do. We have different colors of hair, different features, growth patterns, width, height, depth. Everything is individual. There are no two stars alike, no two flowers alike, no two two blades of grass alike. There aren't two snowflakes that are alike. There aren't too many things in God's creation that are really alike. Have their own little set of amino acids. And while I'm on it, let me just go ahead and help you understand this is one of the ways in Scripture you can defeat the evolutionary theory. This is one of the greatest proofs against evolution anywhere in the Bible. Just think about it. Because no matter what you eat, it all comes out you. So you could eat nothing but Kentucky Fried Chicken every day for the next 10 years, and I promise you, you're not going to grow feathers. You could eat nothing but hamburgers, and beloved, you're not going to become out a cow. (laughs) Because the combination of amino acids in your body is this. It's always going to produce you. It's always going to produce a human. A bird's amino acids are always going to produce a bird. A fish's amino acids are always going to produce a fish. So evolution can't take place to where some amino acids create something else. It doesn't happen like that. That's not the way God set it up. And, And science can never disprove that. They can just disagree with it. So you just have to understand what's happening here. So, so, you know, if snakes, they they teach that snakes became birds. Well, snakes can't become birds because no matter what a snake's wish, if a a snake climbs up a tree and wishes for a million years that it could be a bird, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen because their amino acids make it that way. God says there's one type of flesh of men. There's another of flesh, another of beasts, another of birds, right? They're just how God's made this. So there's one kind of flesh, right? But then he looks at the bigger world of creation in verse 40 and 41. There's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earth is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So he says it's not only these bodies terrestrial, that means earthly, that would refer to the animals and plants, but there's also celestial bodies. That means the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. But the glory of the one is different than the other. Y'all know this, the glory is vastly different. Just like we're vastly different, so we look up and there's everything vastly different. There's a, there's a remarkably difference, right, between the blue bonnets that we see out off of Highway 71. It has one type of glory, and it's amazing. But then the sunset that drops behind it is a completely different glory. It's amazing. Uh, There are stars in our universe that are thousands, uh, they have a thousand suns and more. And from the human, we look at a flower and then we look at a star and we know there's no comparison. We can't even really see the stars, but we know they're incredibly beautiful. A flower is gone in a week, but a star has been there since God created time. There are two kinds of bodies, he says, the earthly kind and the heavenly kind. There's a big, big difference. So what he's saying is, listen, in the resurrection, this body is going to be different. The glory of our resurrected body is going to be incredibly different than the one we had here on earth. That's what he's saying. Verse 41 takes it a step further. He says, there's the glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, right? The word glory means manifestation. 
The sun manifests itself in a brilliant shining light one way. The moon manifests itself in a shining light in another way. The stars manifest themselves as light in yet a different way. And the stars all are different from the other stars. Every star is different. Every sun is different. Every moon is different. It's all different. It's unique. No two stars are alike. Two suns are alike. No two people are alike. No flowers are alike. No blades of grass are alike. goes on and on. So God has limitless capability to do what he desires to do with our body. That's what he's saying. And to deny that, Paul says, is foolishness. Paul's saying to the guy who says, how is he ever going to get all those crummy little pieces put back together again? That's just foolish to even think about because look at what all God has already done. So Paul says God can do anything he wants. There aren't limits to God. So seeds vary, earthly bodies vary, heavenly bodies vary, and so our resurrection bodies will vary. He uses the word glory that simply means manifestation, and what he's saying is it carries the idea of light. Pay attention. Because our resurrected bodies will bear the Shekinah glory of God. This is fantastic. So he says in verse 42, so also, right? Just like those things, so also the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the resurrection of the dead is going to be a different kind of glory than we've ever seen before. Now this is amazing. The idea flows from the thought, so is the resurrection of the dead. Number one, Paul is saying the resurrected body would be different from our body here. But I think he's also saying that we're going to be different from each other that we're all not going to be exactly the same. So people often ask, when we get to heaven, will we be like Christ? 1 John 3, 2 says it this way, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has happened as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Well, what does it mean that we will be just like Christ? Does, does that mean that we're going to be 33 years old and we're going to have beards and we're going to look like Somebody from the Middle East. Is that what that means? I don't think so. I don't think so. People often that question. I don't think so. I think what it means is that we're going we're gonna to look like Christ in the sense that he has a very glorified body. For example, Moses and Elijah, long after they had died, were given some form to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration and were recognizable as Moses and Elijah. But yet they were very different. We see in the resurrection, even at the end, the great great white throne that's standing in the resurrection form, they're small and they're great, which means there's varieties, right? You're going to say, well, will I look like me? Well, yeah, you're going to be recognizable as you. Will I be the same as I am? No, you're going to be different, but you'll be recognizable. I mean, Jesus still had the nail prints in his hands after his resurrection. People will say, well, I'm still going to have this scar on my belly or on my face or on my back. Is my my nose going to be the same or my ears still going to be this funny? Well, I don't know, but, but I do know this. Jesus had the same scars in the same places that he had before he went in the grave. So what Paul is saying is this. The basic form of resurrection is on another level of glory. We'll be different from this body and yet different from each other. And that's exciting to think about. So there's a lot of dear saints who are dead and their spirits are with the Lord and they're waiting for that day to get their clothed body. Y'all know that, right? And here, looking at our infirmities and our weaknesses, we want that body. And so we're going to talk about more about what this body is capable of doing for a few, in a few minutes. But, but out of the grave, sometime comes a body raised in power. And what that means is the full power of God that's ever designed for human beings to possess will be ours in our transformation in the resurrection. 
Martin Luther said of our bodies, he said this, as weak as it is now, without all power and ability when it lies in the grave, just so strong it will eventually become when the time arrives so that not a thing will be impossible for it if it has a mind for it, if it will be so light and agile that in an instant it can float from here below on earth to back up into heaven. It's just one element of the power of resurrected bodies to speed across the universe. The grave reveals the truth about our body. It says that it's incorruptible. It's, it's, it's this thing that's going to be made very different. So then he sums it up in verse 44, and he says this, It is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. He says it, it's a sugacon, a, a soma, a natural body. What he's really saying is, is that right now we have a body that's suited to earth. We have an earth suit on, but God's going to give us a heaven suit. See, we couldn't survive in heaven in this body. It's full of sin, and it's full of corruption, and it won't live in that atmosphere. But God's going to give us a heaven suit, suitable for heaven. And so right now, we're in the natural. We're in the flesh. We have a body that represents this style of life, but we're going to get one that's fitted for heavenly life. That's just a good word. I was reading this week, and I came across one of the things that just blessed my heart. In the days of bloody Queen Mary, there were two martyrs who were being burned at the stake for their faith in the gospel of Jesus. One of these, blind, one of these martyrs was a blind man, and the other was a very lame man who couldn't walk. And these two were holding their faith in Christ and, and Queen Mary ordered that they be burned at the stake. So they were bound to the stake and there they were, the lame man and the blind man. And, and this guy comes along with his torch and he sets fire to the stuff that was underneath them to set them on fire. And the lame man threw away his staff and turned over to his blind brother and said this, take courage, take courage, my brother, for today this fire is going to set us both free. Because he knew they were going to get a new body in heaven where he wouldn't be lame and where he wouldn't be blind. There's a definite relationship with our present body. There's a distinct recreation of a physical body. And lastly, very quickly, there's a different reality of a permanent body. There's a different reality of a permanent body. Look in verse 42. So also the resurrection, it's sown a perishable body, but raised a what, church? Imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in what, church? Glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in what? It's sown a natural body, but raised a what? If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And so he's talking about the challenges that we currently have. I'm going to break this up into two sections. First of all, there's a sowing of this perishable body. Let me broaden that statement. He's not only talking about burial, but he's talking about the whole manifestation of our, of our life is perishable. It's, it's due of corruption. This doesn't sound very appealing or pleasant, but from the day that you and I are born, we begin to die. Y'all know that. I mean, from the moment that we're born, we begin to die. Birthing is the beginning of our decay, and we begin to perish immediately. So this whole life of corruption and perishability, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Y'all remember when Lazarus was in the grave for four days, and, and Martha looked over at Jesus, and she said this, this is my, my attempt at King James English. Lord, don't you think he stinketh? You lay in the grave, you, you, that's what happens. Even in the grave, we continue to corrupt and perish. 
And corruption, of course, is accelerated by the grave. The whole process of our life is one of decay. It's a sphere of corruption. We decay, we get disease, we become firm, we get ill. The process goes on and on. Our muscles weaken, our bones weaken, et cetera, et cetera. The longer we live, we're living in the spirit of decay and perishability. We're in that state of corruption, and we're sown in that. And it's just talking also about burial. Literally, it says that's how we're sown. That's how we're put into the ground in a state of corruption. And then he says that we're also sown into dishonor. I think what he means is that man was potentially capable of being something else. And God looked at us in his creation. He said it's good. And God gave man a glory beyond anything else that he made. God gave man the capacity to, to manifest himself beyond anything else that he made. Man had a greater capacity to manifest God than anything else in all of his creation. And so man could manifest God, and the very glow of God could come through man. The very life of God could be made visible through man. But man sinned and dishonored and scarred and marred the very image of God. And so the whole of man's life since the fall of Adam is to dishonor the image and glory of God. That's what we do. But someday the glory potential will be restored. So then he says there in verse 44, he says, we're sown in weakness. Anybody in the room know you're weak? Anybody in this room know that you're subject to disease? There's no superpower that's going to keep you from that. What about heartache? Anybody had heartache? Talk about weakness. Never felt more weak than when I was heartbroken. We can't fulfill our own dreams, our own desires. We can't overcome our limitations. We can't conquer our infirmities or our weaknesses. We struggle. We're victimized by everything around us, by the environment, by the things we eat, by the people around us. We're just weak beings. And then what happens? We go in the grave and the ultimate weakness becomes obvious. We can't even raise ourselves from the grave. We can't do anything. We're like, we're just rotting away there. Then he sums it up in verse 44. He says it's sown a natural body. What he means is a body suited to this life. It's a body that we raise though a spiritual body but yet again, we're sown in weakness. Right now, we're in the natural. We know the current challenges that we all have. So then he says, let's talk, stop talking about the challenges. Let's look at the changes that we're going to experience. So, and he says, we're sown in perishable, but we will be raised in imperishability. That, that's crazy. What's going to happen in the future is that you and I will never be corrupted. That's pretty cool. We're never going to perish. That's pretty awesome. That's why Peter says over in 1 Peter that we have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that can't fade away, reserved for us in heaven. That's pretty awesome. We'll have an incorruptible existence with no decay and no infirmities in the future. We go in the grave corrupt and perishable. We come out incorruptible, imperishable. That's a fantastic thing. The body will never decay. It's never going to get old. It'll have no time limitations. It will not have the capacity to deteriorate. will be permanently forever imperishable. That's awesome. And then he says that we're sown in dishonor, but we're raised in glory. You and I in our resurrected bodies will manifest the glory of God like never before. We will shine with the Shekinah glory of God. We will never dishonor the image of God again. We will manifest the power and beauty and glory of God. In other words, the full manifestation of the sons of God, the way he made us to be, will be returned to us. He says it will be raised in power. What that means is full of power that God designed for a human being to possess. 
will have power that's just beyond what we can literally even imagine. There's no more limitations to us. Martin Luther said it again. He says, as weak as it is now, without all power and ability, when it lies in the grave, just as weak as it is there, so as strong as it will eventually become. That's just one element of the power of our resurrected bodies in the sense that we get to speed across the universe just by thinking about it. <laughs> Remember I told you I'd tell you something I want to do as a little boy? When I first saw Superman, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I'm like, I want to do that. Well, guess what? I'm going to one day. And so are you. There's no more limit to this body. We're going to speed our way across the universe. It's incorruptible. It's, it's dishonored and weak now, but it's going to be very different. So in the resurrection, the whole kind of existence has changed. We'll be entirely different, entirely unique. We'll be like the angels, but that doesn't mean we're going to be wearing white robes and have wings. It simply means that we'll be like the angels in the sense that we are suited for that level of existence to be that close to God and all of his glory. And if you want to know kind of like we're going to be, just look at how the angels go and come. That's how you and I are going to be able to do that. If you think about it, right? You're just going to be here and then one day you can be there and it just doesn't even take any effort to do so. That, I'm looking so forward to that. I'm going to get to fly one day. It's going to be awesome. To close out his points, he says in verse 44, there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body, and the two are completely different. So he says to the Greeks, he says, look, there's going to be a body, even though you don't think there's going to be one, and to the rabbis, he says, and it's going to be a very different one than the one that went in the ground. Yet in a sense, the same sense of plants related to the seed, they have this connection. And then he closes, which we will, with some theological contrasts. Verse 45, he begins looking at the substance of this contrast. And he says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He takes from Genesis 2-7 and he adds two words. He says, the first man, Adam, became a living person. He pulls out this scriptural principle to illustrate the point he just made, that the natural body and the supernatural body are different. When Adam was made, he was given a natural body. He didn't have a glorified body, as we talked about earlier. If he had passed his probation period, I think God would transform him by the free biting of the tree of the fruit of life, but he didn't. He sinned, and God had to keep him away from it. But Adam was given a natural body. He was just a living, natural body attuned to the environment of earth. But he moves beyond the statement of two, and he drops that statement there, and then he says, the last Adam, well, who is that? Anybody know who the last Adam is? It's Christ. Christ was made a life-given spirit. Where Adam gave us a natural body because he was created with one, Christ gives us also a spiritual body because he was given one in the resurrection. Now, by the way, Paul uses the Adam-Christ analogy many times. And he's talking about how one man's act can affect the whole race. We've talked about that a little bit else, elsewhere. The first Adam, Paul says, was made a living soul. He had a body made from dust, and into that body of dust, God himself, a spirit, breathed a breath, and the joining of the spirit and the body produced another phenomenon called the soul or the personality. It's the presence of a spirit and a body that creates the soul and allows a person to function as a human being with mind, emotion, and will. That's what the first Adam was. Now in the fall, the Holy Spirit that dwelt inside the human spirit of Adam was withdrawn, and the human spirit was though it was lifeless and dead. Man, therefore, was governed by his soul, his thoughts and his emotions, the highest part of his being, which can feel, touch, and taste, and reason and think, but it has no contact at that point with anything above it. 
The Bible says that we are dead now in our trespasses and sins. And every single one of us is born that way. Every single woman born of Adam is simply that way by nature. But then came the last Adam, Jesus, a life-given spirit. He came and as a spirit, he indwells by faith our human spirits as we receive him and we open up our life to him. He regenerates our human spirit. And he is now from that vantage point within us beginning to impart life of the soul again to us to recapture our minds and emotions and to help us now connect back with our creator. So we begin to experience life right now, the joy of being once again in relationship with God who made us. Jesus is that life-giving spirit and he's waiting to take us and to put his spirit into this earth suit so that we can connect back to heaven. Verse 46, though, he talks about this. He tells us, well, that's the source. It's Jesus. But what's the sequence? In verse 46, he says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. You don't need to know this, but I'm telling you anyway, the Mormon church teaches that we were once spirit beings who then came to earth and became men. But if you want to know why we call things cults is because actually the Bible just now said the spiritual didn't come first, which came first. The Bible says the natural did. Well, so then somebody's wrong. We came into existence on a physical level, but, but then we became spiritual. Paul says, remember the sequence. First you receive the natural body, then comes the supernatural body. First comes the natural, then the spiritual. First that which is suited for this earth, and then what is suited for heaven. And then finally Paul looks at the source. There in verse 47 he says this. The first man is from earth, Earthly, the second man is from heaven, as is the earthly, so those who are earthly, as is the heavenly, so those who are heavenly. Just as we are born the image of the earthly, we also bear the image of the heavenly. Paul, what are you talking about? He goes back to the analogy. The first man was the earth. He was earthy. And God took the dust of the ground and he formed Adam. He was earthy. But Christ was not made of the earth. He eternally existed, and that's his point here. So in Adam's case, you have something tied to the earth, but in Christ, you have something tied to heaven. Verse 37, he is the Lord from heaven. So the point being Adam, Adam has given us our earthly existence, but Christ gives us our heavenly one. Adam is going to give us a body made out of dust. Christ is going to give us one specifically formed from heavenly capacity. So Adam's creation in an earthly manner out of dust grants to all of us the same natural bodies we have. But Christ coming out of the grave and the wonder of his resurrection then becomes for us the guarantee of a different kind of body that would come from heaven. Verse 48, he says, as is the earthly, so also that are the earthly. In other words, as in Adam, so we are. As in the heavenly, such as those are in the heavenly. In other words, listen, if you and I are in Adam, we're going to be earthly. But if we're in Christ, we can be heavenly. So he says, Adam was created from the earth. Christ in his resurrection was given a body fitted for the supernatural dimension of heaven and eternity. So verse 49, he closes and he says this. As we are born the image of the earthly. Y'all look around just for a minute. Everybody look around. Just look around. Look around. Everybody in this room knows that we're all from earth. Amen? You bear this image, right? Now, just for kicks and giggles, can you do me this favor? Can you just look up to heaven? Because he who is seated there is one day who you will look like. Just as we born this, so too we will look like that. That's Paul's point. 
You want to know what he was like in his resurrection? That's what you're going to be like. In his resurrection, Jesus could appear and disappear. Did y'all notice that? In his resurrection, Jesus Christ could go through walls. What a great day that's going to be. In his resurrection, he could transplant himself place from one place to another just by thinking it. But also in the resurrection, he could eat fish and honeycomb. <laughs> in his resurrection, he could sit down with his disciples and show them the scars in his hands. He could speak and be understood. In his resurrection, he's, he was who he was, but yet in a glorified way. And that if he didn't reveal himself, no one would ever know who he was. There was something so different, and yet there was something so the same. In Acts 1.11, they said this. He said, this same Jesus who was taken up for you shall do what? He shall come back. In other words, when Jesus Christ comes back, he'll be exactly the same as he went, but he'll be different. He's going to be in a glorified body that's not corruptible. It will never change. It's so powerful that, that, that there's no limits to it. it. It is when Jesus comes back, we will see the glory of God. Amen. And that's what we're going to be like. That's the kind of bodies that we're going to have. A body that when all flesh is gone, that's the human part that's sinful. When all that blocks the glory of God is gone, the spirit of God that dwells in us now will have God's glory and we're just going to shine forever. This is awesome. You say, are we going to be exactly like Christ? Well, Philippians 3.21 says this, who would transform, did y'all hear this? Transform from the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body. That's the key. We're not going to look just like Jesus with a beard. That'd be weird for you ladies. He's going to transform us according to his glorious body. That's Paul's point. It's going to be a glorious body. Read Luke 24, right? Jesus was eating and and doing all that kind of stuff, as I read to you earlier, but they saw him, and they saw the glory of God. Here's my point as the band begins to come. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Tell you if I could maybe boil this all down into one simple thought. Can I just say this to you? Don't get attached to this one. Because <laughs> this ain't your final resting place, friends. What would our body be like? Well, this is going to be recognizable. You'll be known as you. It's going to be very tangible, physical, because it'll be capable of eating and drinking. Jesus said a spirit doesn't do that. But it's also going to be supernatural, and I think that that's amazing. This past week, I was also reading about a woman that was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And she'd be given three months to live. As she was getting things in order, she contacted her pastor and asked him to come to her house to discuss her final wishes. So like typical happens, she told him what songs to sing and what scriptures she wanted to be read. And she also requested to be buried with her favorite Bible. Not very common. Was the pastor began to leave her house, suddenly she remembered something. And she said, Pastor, Pastor, there's one more thing. Pastor looked at her and said, hey, sweetheart, well, what's that? She said, this is super important to me, Pastor. She says, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Pastor kind of chuckled and he looked at her and he didn't really know what to say. And he said, in all, he says, in all my life, I've never heard that. You've got to do some explaining. And she said, well, listen, Pastor, I'm a good Southern Baptist. And, and of all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, somebody would always stand up and say, hey, everybody, keep your forks. The best is yet to come. She said it was my favorite part of the meal because I knew something better was coming like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie and ice cream. 
She said, so when people see me in that casket with a fork in my hand, and they ask you, Pastor, what's up with the fork? I want you to tell them that I believe the best was yet to come. Folks, the best is yet to come. Would you stand to your feet? Lord Jesus, we, we're in awe of what you would do for us. But God, in the midst of all our sin and all of our failings, that you still have something even better. I mean, I thought grace was amazing in this life. God, grace that, that heaven has to offer blows my mind, and I'm so grateful that you love us and that you would do that for us. But God, if there's anybody in the room today that doesn't know you, that that's never, never been born again, never confessed their sin to you and asked for your great mercy and forgiveness and received your great love for them, I pray that even right now, your spirit would bring that conviction to their heart and the hope and joy of heaven would follow. Lord, do your work now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as we sing. Turn your eyes.